0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Radiotherapy, your one-stop shop for all things medical and psychiatric. And uh, it's a new year for our team, and uh, I've, we've got uh, a wonderful team uh, here in the in the studio today. Uh, we don't have Anabolic, who's uh, she's tending to her brood, uh, but we have the ever-reliable Enfant Terrible of psychiatry, SK, and uh, he's uh, he's uh, he's looking well. As as Tollman used to say, looking buffed. And, uh, and he's uh, going to talk to us today about uh, assisted dying legislation. So uh, um, we're all looking forward to that a great deal, I'm sure. And we're very excited to have uh, a new recruit to our team today, Dr. Perry Partom, who's, who's uh, sort of cross-pollinated from one of the other teams. And, yeah, uh, I, I think
2: actually off-air, Kent referred to me as a cane toad.
1: Which uh, uh, yeah, a cane I, toad. Well, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're talking about you as the new boom recruit. And... <laughs> uh, uh, and and Perry is going to review that wonderful film, Lion, which uh, I really enjoyed. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit later in the show about uh, Donald Trump and the attack on truth. And we're also going to hear from uh, Associate Professor Jason McKenzie, uh, who's a microbiologist. And uh, we're going to talk to him on the phone very soon about uh, this outbreak of uh, Ross River virus uh, that's uh, hit Melbourne very recently. So I'm Sure, that most of us uh, are fairly nervous about that, and he's going to reinforce that anxiety. So, um, uh, we'll uh, come back with a little bit of ketchup and uh, strap in and uh, enjoy. Join us for radiotherapy.
0: Just listen to
1: this. <laughs> Sk, welcome back. Good to see you. Yeah,
0: it's good to be here. I was just listening to your intro. I mean, uh, Ross River virus. You know, Ross River as a tourist destination has got a real marketing problem, hasn't it? You know, <laughs> it's the only thing that the town of Ross River is favourite for. It's, um, is, is famous for. It's uh, you know potentially life threatening and really painful uh, infectious disease. You know. Well, I mean, they could. Uh, I mean Things are only looking up from here. I mean, there. Well, there's, there's there's other precedents in Victoria. I think there's Mother Murray River Valley and Kefalitis, and there's something called the Bairnsdale ulcer as well. Which Bensdale ulcer is Bairnsdale a beauty. Yeah, that sort of that flesh
1: eating thing. You know, you, oh, you yes, stand yes. in the mud and uh, yeah, wonderful thing. Comes to Gippsland. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's it's a great place. And Perry, welcome on board. Thank you very much. And exciting to have you here. Yes, very
2: exciting to be here. i behave as Little like a cane toad as I possibly
1: can. Absolutely, and of course we've got behind the uh, behind the panel the wonderful Kentus Maximus, who's uh, who's going to help us along, and um. Uh, look, the, the main news. I think we're, we're going to ha- have a chat about uh, about Ross River with uh, um, our uh, our uh, on the phone microbiologist. So we'll come back to him in a moment. So we may just have a brief break, Kent, and uh, and then we'll 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 get uh, Jason on the phone, and uh, we'll find out a little bit about this new and troubling development. <laughs>
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Uh, We've got on the the line Associate Professor Jason McKenzie, who's a microbiologist and immunologist. Uh, Good morning, Jason. Good morning, how are you? Yeah, look, uh, very well. And uh, this new Ross River business. Can you tell us a little bit about it? What's uh, what's going on and uh, uh, we we hear that uh, the mozzies are invading Melbourne and everybody's at risk.
3: Um, yeah, well, um, I guess to start off with it's probably not a new um, virus that's come into Victoria. It's been here quite regularly actually and um, there's quite a few cases each year a couple of hundred each year and there's a, occasional spikes that probably correlate a little bit with the weather and the more rain we get of course the more mosquitoes we get and so, therefore, just it's, it's a bit of a numbers game so the the virus can get into the population and cause a few infections.
2: Can I ask a question? Does that mean that actually it's endemic to Melbourne in a similar way it's, to it being endemic in Ross River?
3: Uh, so, so you mean Ross River's endemic into Melbourne? In
2: Melbourne, is yeah. It? Is, it, is it actually um, something that exists and just gets worse yeah. and more, more frequent the more we get this kind of muggy weather?
3: Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, as I said, um, you know, like in 2011, there was 1,500 cases of Ross River um, within Victoria. I guess the thing at the moment is that this, they're seeing some cases in Melbourne and, because it's normally, normally confined up into northern Victoria and um, sort of around the Murray region and within Gippsland. And so just at the moment, though, they're starting to see these Diagnosed cases in Melbourne, which is very different to what's been seen before.
1: And so, how would you, how does someone know that, they've, that they, they might be actually experiencing the symptoms of Ross River fever?
3: Yeah, so with a lot of mosquito-borne sort of viral infections, um, you'll start to feel obviously a bit unwell, um, but flu-like symptoms, but you'll also start to probably experience a bit of pain in your joints um, and your muscles will feel very, very sore. And so that's sort of a bit of a key that you might have what's called an alboviral infection, which is a mosquito-transmitted disease. So infections also like dengue are quite similar in terms of that presentation. So, But, yeah, if people are starting to feel sort of soreness in their muscles and in their joints, then they're probably better off going to see a GP and try and get some diagnosis.
1: And would those people who have those very symptoms, would they have, I mean, if they do have Ross River, will they be aware that they've been bitten by mozzies?
3: Uh, Well, I I guess if they've been up in a region, perhaps over summer or so, where there's been a lot of mosquito activity and they've they've probably had a number of of mosquitoes biting them and a few mosquito bites, then that's probably the way. I mean, if you're just sitting around in Melbourne, you're probably not going to encounter too many mosquitoes, as, as many of us would know. But certainly if you've been up, And Echuca or around the Murray, you know, a lot of people have probably been sitting outside in the evening and bitten by mosquitoes. And so, therefore, they've been exposed not only to the mosquito, but potentially also to the virus.
0: So is this a problem that uh, people acquire in regions like Echuca and then bring back to Melbourne? So the the actual mosquitoes that carry the virus are not based in Melbourne. It's It's a tourist virus that people bring back from infected areas.
3: Um, some of the mosquitoes are certainly around the Frankston area, um, and so that's where I think they're seeing a few. A few of the newer cases are, are starting to pop up around that area. So, isolated spots within Melbourne, and particularly down the southern region, more coastal, swampy sort of areas as well, marshlands. Therefore, you're going to encounter a lot more mosquitoes because that's where they live. That's their habitat. Um, they're not really city dwelling. Um, mosquitoes if you like so um, if you're in those types of regions then you're you're probably going to encounter a few of of the mosquitoes so So it's not necessarily a, a return traveler's infection they're just isolated
0: pockets where you could encounter the infection. So if the pool of virus is now in Melbourne or outer Melbourne mosquitoes, uh, has it always been that way or is this a recent development and are we going to be seeing more cases of Ross River virus acquired and developed and brewing in Melbourne and presumably because of the higher population density in Melbourne, even if the mosquitoes are fewer, there's a lot more people around to infect.
3: Yeah, and certainly if the population encroaches
0: within those marshland-type um, areas, so obviously the
3: city is developing and urbanisation is occurring, and we're getting more of the sort of satellite cities and, and getting those into sort of marsh, swampy land-type um, areas. And in that case, yeah, you'll definitely start to see probably more increases of just of mosquito activity, but also just encountering the virus. Although, as I said before, I mean, you know, there's there's sort of a couple of hundred, around 500 cases that we sort of see within Victoria each year. And then occasionally, like in in 2011 and I think in 97 and so, and and maybe even um, a few other years, we do get this increased spike of infections. And it's probably just got to do with the increased rain, which increases the mosquitoes and therefore increases the, the carriage,
0: the virus carriage. And, and do we see cases of Ross River in other parts of Australia outside of Victoria or is it largely a Victorian based thing? No, it's definitely a
3: Queensland, sort of New South Wales infection so a number of cases each year. Queensland and New South Wales would have the most um, number of incident cases of Ross River um, annually. We'd, down here in Victoria it's, it's it's a little bit less infrequent but certainly you know Queensland experiences large outbreaks um, each year. Yeah.
1: And uh, so if Uh, Unfortunately, one contracted this condition. Um, Mm. uh, I presume there's no formal treatment. It's uh, just conservative measures. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's right. It's um, like a lot of virus infections. Unfortunately, we're limited in terms of our um, antiviral therapies or treatment options and also um, vaccines to prevent the infection. So there's a lot of if you diagnose the infection, it's really just taking a lot of care and, and patient management. Um, particularly if it gets very severe. So Ross River, of course, can cause a very chronic, um, debilitating infection in, in the muscles and joints. And in fact, some people get a lot of arthritis um, for about 18 months. It can persist for so. And those treatment options are just really anti-inflammatories, um, but, and pain relief. But overall, you yeah, have very limited um, sort of antiviral treatments or, or preventative options for these infections.
1: So clearly, the thing to do is to not get this condition. And how would you advise people to ensure that they don't come down with uh, that cocktail of unpleasantness?
3: Yeah. Um, avoid mosquitoes as best you can. Um, but, you know, your normal. Preventative measures against mosquitoes: deep um, wearing long sleeve clothing, particularly I guess in the evening um, and the dusk and dawn. Um, bed nets would also be advisable. So just your standard options that you would try to keep away from mosquitoes as best as possible um, will will really limit and reduce um, your exposure to well virus harbouring mosquitoes in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Are we getting any closer to understanding the actual virus itself? Do you think that might be the way forward in you know, developing vaccines or, or, or any other kind of treatment measures?
3: Yeah, so it's a lot of the work that we actually do at the Peter Doherty Institute, um, where I work at the moment. And what we do there is try to understand how the virus itself can cause the disease um, within an infected individual. And just as you say, understanding those basic principles can really pave the way in understanding how we could target for um, treatment options and also how we can understand perhaps how we can generate a vaccine to these viruses so it's that really good basic research that sort of sets the foundation for how we develop sort of therapies in the future yep
1: great jason thank you so much for your insights uh, and uh, wish you all the best three triple R. Perry's going to talk about the the movie Lion. And I must say, I saw it a week ago, and I cried like a little baby. And uh, uh, Perry, tell us about the film.
2: Oh, you're certainly not the only one. I was in a cinema in which there was a lot of people blowing their noses from about midway onwards. It was definitely clear that everybody, apart from me, I didn't cry until the very end, um, but everybody was really affected by the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly a film that's very effective in in creating an emotional response in nearly everybody who sees it. So what I might start out by doing is talking a little bit about the premise for those of you out there who haven't yet heard about it and then maybe talk a little bit more about um, some of the themes that it raises and the questions in my mind that it left me with. Mm -hmm. So it's a film based on the true story of a little boy who got lost on India's vast train system and wound up adopted by a childless couple in Tasmania. In the film, the story is told in two parts. His first terrifying journey from rural India to Calcutta and his desperate attempt to survive in that massive city through to his adoption by the Briley family and his first experiences in Tasmania. And then the film jumps forward 25 years... To almost the present day when Google Earth's first very clunky iteration gave him the opportunity to study the train system in India and calculate where approximately he might have travelled from given that he didn't know his surname or the exact name of any of the close towns to where he was living as far as the Indian authorities could figure out. So at that point he was then surrendered to an orphanage and eventually um, for adoption. So as you mentioned, the movie itself is beautiful and will make everybody cry. Um, and I think that the the reason why it's so emotionally um, available to the audience is because of the visual imagery that it uses. It bypasses words most of the time and just demonstrates the fear and the desperation that this tiny little boy feels in this massive city, where there are where there are menaces and sinister people around almost every corner.
1: Yeah, I I've, I found the child actor to be quite extraordinary, and I think. Um, you know as as a parent, all you wanted to do was just to pick him up and uh, and hold him and, and and take him with you and and look after him and and uh, soothe. Uh, the, the, the desperation that he that he experiences
2: yeah I think it's interesting that that's the almost universal response of every parent I've spoken to who's seen the film and yet the reason why he survives is because he never gives in to that uh, impulse in himself to be rescued there's a couple of different moments in the film where the only reason that he avoids being abducted or possibly trafficked into child slavery is because he's very wary and very watchful and I couldn't that, that was the thing that I've found very difficult to understand watching the movie at the start because no five-year-old I know is nearly as watchful and wary. They're all very comfortable in adult company and they all trust adults and uh, it was one of the reasons why I had to then find out a little bit more about the film and so then I read the book.
1: So tell us about that.
2: (laughs) Uh, So uh, it answered a few of my questions. Um, uh, Firstly it seems Pretty clear in the movie as well, but is more explicitly discussed in the book that he came from a family which was really on the very edge of destitution. Um, his mother had been abandoned by her husband; she had four children to support, and she worked in a quarry moving rocks. So, really, at the very, um, the very, very uh, desperate end of poverty, even in India, and. As a consequence, most of the children in the family had already started to fend for themselves, even probably from about the age of five. So his older brothers were away from home for weeks at a time, uh, you know, stealing food, scamming money and um, bringing as much home as they could. But they certainly were very independent. And he really was as well. In fact, um, his mother didn't alert the authorities until about a week after he had disappeared because it was pretty normal for her kids to be gone for that period of time.
0: That sort of really relates to the point you made earlier about no five-year-old that you know being wary enough to be able to... Uh uh, you know, have situational awareness about when they're at risk. It, it does speak to the different experiences of childhood in different countries. I mean, our kids are very cushioned and uh, isolated from the harsh realities of the world, and arguably you could say that childhood as we know it in Western countries is very much a, a, a 19th or 20th century phenomenon. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it didn't really exist as a separate life stage in countries where destitution is rife.
2: Yes, and I think it's fascinating that some of those characteristics that were inculcated in him at the age of four and five and helped him to survive this this experience are really also very clear in the adult that he's become. And I might talk a little bit about that as well in a minute. But I suppose the other thing that I um, that I found pretty striking about his childhood experience is I didn't really believe that he could... That he could survive for two months without you know being taken advantage of in some way and then even when he was in the orphanage, it seemed pretty clear that that was no refuge that there were children who were obviously being abused in various different ways, and that's consistent in the in the book as well um, so so yeah I think I, I think that um there were other things that I found difficult to understand, I suppose in in the, in the movie as well. There, there was this the attitude of his adoptive family who seemed uh, really to have a very confusing motivation for adopting child from another place and um, in the movie. Nicole Kidman portrays this somewhat kind of wacky saint,
1: I think. Yeah, there's a selflessness about her.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and she's had a vision and that's the reason why she wants to adopt children and I found that pretty difficult to understand as well. In, in the book she's much less um, wacky but equally saintly, I think. The mm. motivation for her seems to have been that she really felt that there were enough people in the world already and that there were some of them who were having a terrible life so that was the reason why she decided to adopt these two children so in fact Saru is not an only child he has another um unrelated adoptive brother Mantosh who comes along about four or five years later when he's been living with the Brileys in Tasmania for about yeah four years and becoming an Aussie
1: Hmm. and he's got his own story Mantosh
2: well that's right so I think that um part of what the film also does very effectively is to show the flip side of what's possible in terms of the terrible outcomes for children who were abandoned in India whereas Suru seems to just sail through unscathed for all the potential disasters that might befall him and I think there are a lot of potential disasters there's even more in the book in fact than in the movie Um, he falls into the Ganges twice um, nearly drowns can't swim of course and then he's saved by the same homeless man and what else happens? Oh, he's chased by a child gang and they throw rocks and bottles at him and he nearly dies. Um, he has to hide in a rubbish tip to escape. And, uh, and yeah, then there's a moment when he thinks he's going to be taken in by this other family. And when he spends too long playing in the river, the woman suddenly decides that he's not worth the effort and she starts to throw rocks at him, you know. So he is incredibly terrified and and, and vulnerable and he sort of faces... You know immediate annihilation at every moment in these two months uh, and 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 then sort of comes to this fairy tale life in suburban Tasmania. I think the film really contrasts India and Tasmania extremely effectively as well, particularly his experience i think um i I traveled to india as a as a child actually um around about this time, and I have very vivid, strong memories of the smells and the sights and the sort of crumbling um terror of it all and the teeming mass of people and, and oh that's the other thing in the book he actually also sees dead people on the banks of the Ganges as well who've clearly been murdered so it's a very very sinister place um, and I don't know that that India exists anymore certainly um i think that when he goes back he's quite jolted by the fact that there's electrical uh, there, i think he finds it claustrophobic and doesn't know why and then he realizes that there's electricity in the villages so there's all these electrical poles everywhere and wires everywhere and so it's, you know but at the same time um when he does eventually find his family spoiler alert They use rainwater. To they don't have um, sewage or piped water at all. They use rainwater coming down from the roof, actually dripping through a hole in the roof, um, for their water supply. So there are some things that are still not not very different. Hmm. So, so sorry. Ask me another question.
1: Well, you you said that you, 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 I mean, in the in the movie, you see the the little boy in the adult. I, I was struck by um, uh, just ha- his solitary pursuit uh, of. Uh, it, it was almost um, th- there was there was a zealousness about the way that he uh, he devoted himself to to finding his uh, his his mother and uh, and his older brother uh, Gudu, and uh, it, it, it is um that 's an extraordinary journey and and is that did the film accurately uh, well did the were, were the book and the film similar in terms of that
2: they were similar in that he spent a very long time uh during which all of his Free waking moments were devoted to this quest. So, in the book, he talks about it's about eight months of every evening after work, seven or eight hours, you know, looking through Google Earth, trialling the topography of each different area and seeing if it matches up with his recollection. So, that's a that's a big deal. I think, for dramatic reasons, the movie tended to try to focus to, to turn this into sort of a nervous breakdown, um, to use a non-psychiatric term. That you know, he he loses his job, he loses his girlfriend, he moves. his mattress next to the wall where he's put this um, map of India so that he can more closely observe it and think about it and wake up in the middle of the night and, and, and learn more about it. That doesn't seem to be the case in his real life. You know, he's, um, even, even though in, it, in both the book and the movie the girlfriend is essentially relevant, you know, she's this kind of persistent, whiny presence um, intermittently through, the, through, the, through both the book and the film. And I couldn't really figure out why she bothered in the end. Because, why she hung around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, given that she really, I mean, I don't think he had any any of his brain space available for his relationship with her. It really was all about finding his family. But I don't think it was about finding his family in order to then go back and live the life that he hadn't lived, because he's very clear throughout the book that, in fact, he's very grateful to the life, to the family that adopted him in, in Tasmania and the opportunities that he was given here. I think that he was really worried about his mother and her belief that he must have died because that's what he presumed she must have believed mm. he really wanted to go back to let her know that he was okay
0: you've mentioned uh, that you viewed it very much as a film of two parts uh which of the two parts did you find more moving the yeah. early part t- telling his story of travel and survival and the orphanage and surviving on the streets or the family reunification part later
2: I think it's pretty poignant when he goes back there as essentially a grown Australian adult male and, you know, he's 30 and he's living with his girlfriend and he doesn't really have much of an interest in religion and he doesn't really know where his relationship's going and he doesn't really have a career yet and he has a conversation on a train with a tiny little urchin who pities him because he's not married yet. So a lot of who he is 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 contained in his life subsequent to the age of five, and then going back and meeting all these people with whom he shares a face and a stature, but really no, no essential element of his self, I think is really moving for me.
0: Because it's, it's sort of an interesting paradox to me. I haven't seen the film yet, but uh, from the way you describe it, it's, it's almost as though In a sense, he was incredibly lucky because he was the one amongst all of the kids who found themselves in that orphanage, many of whom would have had similarly traumatic backgrounds and had a fascinating, terrible journey in and of themselves to reach that point. But he was the lucky one who was taken out and given this new life and then there seems as elements of dissatisfaction with this new life that drive him to to go back and seek his origins.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I I think it's not dissatisfaction with his life, but it's a it's a it's an attempt to try and reconnect with his birth mother uh, and and to help her and to help other people in a similar situation. So I think um, you know he he's. Actually, done quite a lot to try and support his family over there, and also to support the organisation that, uh, in the end, facilitated his adoption. Um, but I think he's very clear that he's an Australian now, mm-hmm. with an you know an Aussie girlfriend and an Aussie life of kind of you know indeterminate <laughs> nature. <laughs> um, well, the well. other sorry, just one more thing that I yep. think um, actually relates to SK's point is. Um, when he goes back and sees his family, they've all got careers, which is a stark contrast to what his mother has had to endure, you know, moving rocks around in a quarry. And the only reason they have those careers is because he and his brother disappeared. So she could raise two children and send them to school. She couldn't raise four children and send them to school, and none of his siblings, you know, had attended school when he disappeared. So his surviving brother and sister went to school, his brother became a manager, his sister became a school teacher. And they've kind of clawed their way into the middle class of India. But without his disappearance, that would not have happened and they would still be in this kind of desperate you know, um, struggle for survival on a daily basis that they had been the generation before. So in a lot of ways, it's really fortunate that he disappeared, <laughs> if you can even say that.
0: The amazing tragic twist.
1: <laughs> mm. Well, uh, I implore, if, you're, if you like a good cry, go along and see it. So <laughs> thanks, Perry Partum. <laughs>
2: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Assisted Dying Legislation. S. K. Tell us about this. Well,
0: many of you uh, who listen to Radiotherapy will be aware that since we returned to the airwaves in 2017, the world has subtly changed around us. Uh, One of those changes is the uh, the push in Victoria to have assisted dying legislation introduced. It bears no relation to your next segment, McZiff, which we'll talk about the first uh, three weeks of the Trump presidency, but uh, (laughs) there might be a few more applications in view of uh, developments in the States, perhaps uh assisted dying is an ethical minefield and it would be very easy for this segment to degenerate into a discussion about the pros and cons and the ethical and moral rights or wrongs of assisted dying that's not necessarily what i want to do this morning it's uh to discuss the reality of imminent assisted dying legislation being introduced into Victoria and the sort of issues that it will raise. Because there's currently a government uh, discussion paper out uh, to discuss various issues in relation to assisted dying. They are having a, a series of public hearings chaired by uh, the President of the AMA, Professor Brian Auler, uh, to discuss how the legislation should be framed. So it's no longer a question of if and when, it's a question of how and the discussion paper that's been released is available on the internet. If those who are interested be encouraged to download it and have a look at it. But uh, there's a number of questions that the discussion paper raises about who should be able to access assisted dying and in what circumstances. The discussion paper came out of a Victorian parliamentary inquiry that uh, was undergoing last year, and the, the conclusions of that inquiry, made a number of recommendations uh, in relation to assisted dying becoming available for certain groups of people, and it's the limits around the legislation that I guess I'd like to focus on this morning. The, the parliamentary inquiry stated that a request for assisted dying could only be made by somebody who has a terminal illness with a fairly imminent terminal prognosis. It's, there's, it makes a distinction between illnesses that are, of course, terminal but which play out potentially over many, many years, uh, a, a distinction between that type of terminal illness and the sort of illness where death is relatively imminent. And by relatively imminent, uh, they're talking about timeframes of weeks to months. Not only uh, must a request for assisted dying come from somebody with a terminal illness, as defined in those narrow terms, but they must be undergoing what they consider to be unbearable suffering as a result of that terminal illness uh, and for the request to come in circumstances where palliative care has been demonstrated to be ineffective or inadequate in uh, alleviating that unbearable suffering. What do you think of those vague and broad terms for restricting access to uh, assisted dying and what issues do they raise for you guys?
2: I must um, declare an interest here. I made my, my registrar's as students write an essay on this last year and I have strong views as a consequence of reading all those essays. I suppose one of them is um, there's another broader global context to this which is that a a child in the Netherlands, I think, was able to access the assisted dying legislation which I think um, activated quite a lot of concern around the world. And 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 you know lends a bit of weight to the slippery slope argument, which is used many 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 times over in this context.
0: I think they've tried to avoid the slippery slope. I gave the broad headlines from the parliamentary committee, but they made it clear that uh, <clears throat> a request to access assisted dying can only be made by an adult. So if you're under the age of 18, you are not able to request this pathway. And uh, they're also equally clear that it has that any request has to be initiated by the person themselves. It's not the case where somebody can request assisted dying on your behalf because that in itself raises a whole lot of concerns about conflict of interest and slippery slope, as you say. So there's a, a great need to think through any proposed legislation very carefully and put Uh, safeguards around it. Another safeguard that they proposed was that you are unable to specify a request for assisted dying in any advance directive that you might make whilst you have capacity. And there was a piece of legislation passed last year in Victoria called the Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act. 2016, which related specifically to advanced directives. Now, advanced directives have been around for many, many years. They're being pushed. It's it's been seen as a good thing that people put advanced directives in place. But up until this point, they've not been legally binding. All that's been required is that doctors and healthcare providers must consider an advanced directive when making decisions on behalf of a person who loses capacity. But in relation to to assisted dying legislation, it's proposed that an advanced directive to access assisted dying in circumstances where you might lose capacity to make the request yourself is specifically disregarded. That does raise a few questions for me. I mean, I operate at the opposite end of life to to that which you do, peripartum, but I see a lot of patients who have uh, dementia, for example. And when you look at what young people might wish to put in an advanced directive in circumstances were they to be diagnosed with dementia, you get some really interesting answers. I mean, if you survey uh, medical students and young people about what they would like to see happen... If they received the diagnosis of dementia in later life, a lot of them would say, I would like to seek access to assisted dying in that circumstance. Interestingly, as you progress through the lifespan, the people who are least likely to, uh, to request euthanasia or assisted dying in the setting of a diagnosis of dementia are those who have just been diagnosed with dementia.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. Because I suppose what you were saying raises the issue of what is distress? Is it a psychological state or is it a physical experience of pain? Because I think the psychological uh, aspect of accepting a diagnosis of dementia is pretty complicated.
0: Yeah, but uh, the reason it becomes a bit of a trap with advanced directives is if you were to make an advanced directive at the age of 20, where clearly you have the capacity, you've got your full intellectual faculties and so forth, The concept of having dementia is such a horrifying and ego-alien thing that it's almost beyond the cognitive grasp of a 20-year-old. As you age and accrue age-related diseases and you begin to experience a bit of age-related memory loss and you come to terms with your mortality, the thought of having a dementia is much less confronting at the point at which you finally make the diagnosis than it uh, could ever have been at the age of 20. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the issues with advanced
1: medical directives, that uh, uh, people make very different decisions... In the clear consciousness of absolute well-being, as opposed to the reality of different sorts of conditions and uh, the accrued bruises and, and scars of, uh, of of just living the life that we have, and uh, and so often when confronted with the stress, the the that, that life force uh, in fact takes over. So, um, in, in, I'm I. You know the, the question of of uh, are people with dementia do they have unbearable suffering uh, as opposed to someone who's got a, a metastatic malignant disease whose pain is very difficult to control. I mean they, they're, they're, these are very different very different conditions and and the broad based language of the of the of the, of the government statement is. Uh, um, you, you, you want,
0: I, I'm interested to know how broadly it actually applies. I think Perry Padham's point about whether psychological suffering should be taken into account is a very valid one. And in relation to people with dementia, I mean, I, I work a lot with people with very advanced dementia and see people right at the end of their lives, not infrequently, who are clearly uh, in the process of dying. But uh, in the setting of their dementia, that expresses itself through terminal agitation, constant agitation and distress and wailing and howling and terrible distress, which you feel compelled to try and alleviate. And a a high proportion of people at that stage do die shortly thereafter – clearly in terminal distress receive very poor palliative care in the setting of a dementia and would an advanced directive be of any use in that circumstance.
2: I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts on that. If you've seen that happen and obviously it really affects you emotionally when you see someone suffering to that extent. Do you think, do you think that these people should have access to this legislation?
0: Well, it becomes the slippery slope argument, doesn't it? Because... If they've lost capacity, if they no longer if they no longer have the capacity to express their wishes or to weigh the relevant facts in order to make the decision necessary, and if the legislation is framed purely in terms of a person must make the request. To receive assisted dying or assistance in dying, it excludes that group uh, almost by definition. And also, specifically, excluded, and this again speaks to the point of uh, psychological suffering uh, mental illness as a sole cause is excluded.
2: Yes, so I think that's fascinating and there are other areas around the world where that's not the case. So um, particularly in Belgium, I think that they're more liberal in their interpretation of what distress con- can constitute and um, they have been very clear that it hasn't caused this avalanche of referrals which are a bit iffy or perhaps subject to coercion. Um, and interestingly, in North America as well, um, they've they've got quite a liberal approach in some states to access to assisted dying, and and it really hasn't caused uh, the kind of the kind of um, tumult in our society in their society that you would anticipate if the slippery slope argument were in fact correct.
0: No, and I think it's it's one of those things where it's sort of nice to know that it's there if you need it, but not many people actually. Go to the extent of accessing it, maybe that speaks to the quality of palliative care services. But again, I think it's very wise to frame legislation locally that deals solely and purely with terminal distress and imminent death, because the slippery slope does become slipperier the broader the scope of the legislation, and restricting it to the terminal weeks or months of someone's life in the in the opinion of two specialist doctors who are. Uh, knowledgeable enough to be able to pronounce on such things as prognosis is very wise because opening it up to to mental illness which can cause unalleviable suffering and distress in a very small proportion of cases it's not terminal and to bring that decision forward to the point where somebody is not terminally ill i think is a dangerous uh, dip on the slippery slope so, and, and those two medical practitioners, are they independent medical
1: practitioners or uh, can that actually be treating
0: doctors? The intent is that they are independent so that there's no conflict of interest, either through having had an ongoing therapeutic relationship and in many ways an emotional attachment to to somebody. But, you know, you can buy into their problems if you're not truly independent. But, uh, say, if you had a terminal cancer, then the cancer specialist who was involved in your treatment, there would be another two equally qualified cancer specialists to provide an opinion on the terminal state of the patient. And in cases where capacity is in doubt, uh, then the person must be assessed by a psychiatrist in order to make make it clear that they do have the capacity to to make this decision for themselves.
1: Yeah, it's such a tough area, and uh, um, it'll be interesting to see, I mean, whether they establish a particular panel of doctors who who's a significant part of their daily workload is going to be doing these sorts of assessments. It's, uh, you're,
0: you're, they're certainly making provision for the case where doctors might not want to do this sort of assessment. There's like a conscientious objective yeah, yeah. cause clause proposed and I think that's entirely reasonable. I can understand why some people might be very uncomfortable in participating in both the assessment and the, the process of assisted dying itself.
2: But I wonder, we're, we're talking about doctors helping with decision making, but perhaps as in the Mental Health Tribunal, there might be you know members of the community or lawyers who might have a perspective on this. Probably not solely a medical decision is it?
0: No and in in many ways you could argue that it should be a a legal decision. I've I've had an argument put to me recently that uh, doctors should be taken out of the process and that this should be a a court decided thing or something that is decided through a tribunal such as as VCAT and that perhaps the role of doctors should be limited to uh, making judgments about prognosis and making assessments of capacity.
2: Yeah expert witnesses so-called.
0: Yes, so-called yeah. expert witnesses. Yeah. Expert witnesses who make a contribution to the
1: the the decision so the making decisions. process, yeah. and the court then the court then decides. And I actually think there's something to be said for that because I don't know that um, uh, we as Doct- I, I, I think doctors get into trouble when doctors play God, and uh, and uh, I think disentangling us from that. Uh,
2: um, <laughs> you see, I don't. People outside the studio might not see all the raised eyebrows in here because why should we not play God? Goodness me, what are you saying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, look, uh, uh, this this is something that we could certainly come back to, SK. This is a fascinating story, and it's, uh, it has many, many different aspects to it. And uh, thank you for that, for that uh, wonderful uh, entree. Three, triple. Thought I'd just uh, say a little bit about uh, about Donald Trump, and throughout the latter shows of uh, 2016, we did talk a fair bit about the upcoming American presidential election and the anxiety that many people felt about the possibility, albeit remote at that time, of a Trump presidency. Well, it's come to fruition, and for some, the reality is less daunting than the anticipation. In that the sun still rises, but for others the shock and horror is ongoing much has been said about the trump style he's bombastic he's idiosyncratic he's unpredictable and uh, he's like a wrecking ball taking to establish diplomatic norms and protocols and uh, we could just ask malcolm turnbull about that but in essence trump appears to be doing what he's always done he's bluffing he's blustering he's lying and uh, by and large he's winning and uh, i 've heard from a number of different people recently uh, a key concern about his attack on truth or uh, or facts, so we all know i mean who 'd heard of fake news until very relatively recently and there are fake news sites but when the President of the United States accuses the mainstream media of fake news when they print news that he doesn't like, that's very unsettling. And you wonder how you might handle that. And I think that that is part of the anxiety that a lot of people are feeling. Like, how do you deal with this this new phenomenon?
0: Well, how do you deal with somebody who refuses to operate in reality? I mean, those comparison photographs of the Obama versus the Trump inauguration crowds, for example, do you disbelieve the evidence of your own eyes and call that fake news or an alternative fact it's just bizarre it it
1: is it it is absolutely extraordinary and and i think it's virtually impossible to to argue effectively against someone like trump um the, the ordinary accepted rules of debate are thrown out the window uh there's only one rule that applies, and that is Trump is right. And uh, so if you imagine, for example, um, getting into a boxing ring for a boxing match and you are wearing boxing gloves and you're well-prepared and you get in there and your opponent has a machine gun. And uh, so uh, you, you would recognize at the outset that you are at a slight disadvantage. And if you do happen to land a blow... Before you get shot down, your opponent then complains about the fact that you're being unfair. So so that that to me is is uh, is what it's like trying to argue with Trump.
2: I wonder. I've also been thinking about, obviously, like everybody else, about the phenomenon of Trump and how 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 to react to it. And there's been two different schools of thought. Like one is, um, watch Saturday Night Live every week for the solace that it brings. But the other is, no, don't don't get soothed by Saturday Night Live and how awesome Melissa McCarthy yeah. is. Just, you know, do it, go out, you know, organize, write letters, write emails, that sort of thing. And what do, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that because I think that that is actually the ultimate, the, uh, the ultimate point. Um, so the, the mainstream media are scrambling. I mean, they really are unsure about uh, how to find a way to combat um, this phenomenon. And uh, I don't think they've had much success. And so, I mean... None of us have actually sat down and done a clinical interview with Trump to be able to come up with a diagnosis. So, however, however, <laughs> however, the term narcissistic personality disorder has been bandied about. So I went back and I opened my trustee DSM, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I thought, let's just have a look at the diagnostic criteria for uh, a, a narcissistic personality disorder. And you tell me, I'm going to leave it up to you. So, uh, so a personality disorder is an enduring pattern of behavior and interactions that causes uh, distress uh, to the individual and uh, with uh, person- certain personality disorders to others around them. So with a narcissistic personality disorder, there's a pervasive pattern of grandiosity and a need for admiration and lack of empathy. And then there are a certain set of, of different criteria. And to make the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, you need five of the following. So a grandiose sense of self-importance. So exaggerating one's achievements and talents and expecting to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements.
2: Okay, so this makes me think of what he said in response to the courts upholding the, the ban on, on his executive order this week, where he said, I think I understand understand. understand everything really well better in fact than nearly everybody else which is patently not true
1: absolutely and so then you move on to a preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success
0: power and brilliance in terms of your first point, I noticed the rider without commensurate achievements. And, you know, you could play devil's advocate and say that Trump heads up a multi-billion dollar business empire and is wildly Based on a series of a,
1: bankruptcies and taking And an
0: inherited of money, yeah. But still, yeah. Uh, you could argue that he has achieved a lot. You could. And, and now he he's a,
2: the president of the United States. That's, that's yeah. kind it's of not small. a pretty nice big small. achievement. Yeah. It
1: is, yeah. A belief in themselves being special and only understood by or that they should only associate with other high-status people.
2: I think that's shown in his desperate desire to be friends with celebrities. And and the cameo that he had on Home Alone 2, did you see?
0: No, I didn't see the movie, but, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My most memorable media uh, memory of him is when... Uh, he was roasted by MTV. There's a, a, a celebrity roast of Donald Trump, which is brilliant. It just says everything that we all want to say about him now. Go on.
1: So I'll just run through the rest. Require excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement, an unreasonable expectation of automatic compliance with his or her expectations, being interpersonally exploitative, they take advantage of others to achieve their own ends, lacking empathy. Envious of others or believe others are envious of them and shows arrogant or haughty behavior or attitudes. So I think one could reasonably come to a conclusion that, uh, that Trump meets many of those and, uh, many of those criteria. Now, in clinical practice, the malignant narcissists and psychopaths, they are the hardest of patients to treat because there's nothing wrong with them just ask them and uh, but fortunately they don't tend to darken our consulting rooms all that much because they don't think there's anything wrong with them
2: so that brings us to the final criterion for um, diagnosis of a disorder which is that it causes clinically significant dysfunction and i have to say i don't think that's the case for trump
1: no, he's, no. He's doing
2: pretty
1: well. But he's causing clinically significant distress or dysfunction to billions around the world. So, so you ask yourself, how do we as the average punter deal with this ever-present threat of a man who, who in the mind of many is a monster, but who's the leader of the free world? And I'm not really sure, but Interestingly, and and this Perry, I come to your uh, to the uh, the question that you asked before. One of the things that happened that's happened is Trump is so incredibly newsworthy, so unpredictable that the the very news sites that he is attacking, for example, the New York, New York Times has had its digital subscription numbers increasing, and its paper its uh, its hard copy subscriptions. Also increasing, so the sales are going up because they're reporting about Trump. He, you cannot ignore him, and so, I, the, the, and the the, the uh, in an interesting article I read in Haaretz the, uh, just overnight, the, the 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 question is being asked: Are people going back to their? Um, the, the, the The mainstream media as a sort of comfort, an antidote against what is actually happening with trump and so so is he actually in his criticism of the mainstream media, accusing them of lying and of, of fake news? are people actually returning to the very uh, the, the very sources that he is attempting to undermine
2: the pillars of their civilization
1: exactly mm. exactly and and so I, I, you asked the question before, what should we actually do? Should we laugh at this man or should we not? I think that um, it's essential that where there is a lie, where there is uh, something which is, is not believable, I think that, uh, that the mainstream media and we as individuals, we should be embracing, seeking truth, fact, where there is incontrovertible evidence in, uh, which shows something to be a lie that it needs to be called out. And I think that we need to call it out everywhere all the time. Uh, and I think that that's the best thing that we can do to deal with the anxiety. Now, it's, uh, we're rapidly approaching uh, the scientists from Einstein and Google. Um, so uh, they're going to take over in just a moment. So thank you, Perry Parton, for uh, joining our show. And, uh, and we're going to have you on as one of our regulars. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you very much.
1: And SK, uh, great to have you back, and, uh, and Kent. And uh, with our next show, uh, we're going to have uh, the wonderful, the, the, the seemly, the Anabolics. She's going to be back with us. And uh, uh, so uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday morning, and we're going to hand over to the scientists. Thanks, Kent.